we continue our summer series of messages, Win the Day, by looking at maybe a rather difficult habit to develop, and that's what this one is coming up here at this point. Um, one that we may have struggled with at times about cutting the rope and uh, dealing with those decisions. In 1853, America hosted its first World Fair in New York City. And the organizers built an ex exhibition hall called the Crystal Palace and to showcase the latest and greatest inventions. And this is where a man named Elisha Otis stole the show by pulling off a stunt for the ages. Otis was the inventor of the elevator safety brake but he had a hard time selling his idea to safety-first skeptics. So here's what he did. He, Otis stood on a platform high above uh, the Crystal Palace there. He had an axeman positioned above the elevator shaft. Then he yelled loud enough for everyone in the exhibition hall to hear, cut the rope. The ax came down on the rope. The crowd held its collective breath as the elevator fell, but only fell a few feet. Otis announced to all who went around, all is safe, ladies and gentlemen, all is safe. Now, safety break worked, as did the sales pitch <laughs> for that. When Elisha Otis cut the rope, there were only a few buildings in New York City that were taller than five floors. And why, you may ask? Because no one wanted to take the, the stairs. <laughs> and in 1854, Otis installed an elevator in a building on Broadway, and the rest is history. By 1908, 54 years later, there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as skyscrapers. Fast forward 100 years, according to the Otis Elevator Company, the equivalent of the world's population rides on Otis Elevator every three days. <laughs> so, I think it's safe to say that Elisha Otis turned the world upside down. And how did he do it? Well, you know, there comes a moment when you need to cut the rope. And please hear what I'm about to say as well. Playing it safe is risky. Playing it safe is risky. And those are, that's a phrase for me to hear as well too, because I like playing it safe. I don't like going out on the edge too far. Right? I'm okay with playing it safe. But these are words I need to hear for myself as well too. But the greatest risk is taking no risks. One, first of all, it maintains the status quo. And two, it leads to something called inaction regrets. Inaction regrets. At the end of our lives, according to psychologist Tom Gilovich, 84% of our regrets will be the things we would have or could have or should have done but did not do. It's the woulda, coulda, shoulda regrets. It's not the mistakes we made, as painful as that is. It's the opportunities we miss. And sure, you will experience a few fails and a few falls, but cutting the rope is the way we cut the ribbon on our dreams. So grab a Bible if you haven't yet, and, or go to your Bible app, whatever you choose to do, and meet me in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We're going to start there. In his book called Deep Work, Georgetown professor Cal Newport talks about a concept that he calls the grand gesture. 
and it takes a few different forms. It can be a romantic gesture, like getting down on one knee and proposing in marriage. It can be a physical gesture, like taking a, a before picture when starting a diet or exercise routine. It can be a creative gesture, like the one-way missionaries a century ago, who would pack all their belongings into a coffin instead of suitcases because they knew they would never return. Simply put, a, a grand gesture, and I need to explain this def definition. Oh, it's up there? No, it isn't. <laughs> Let me explain. That is not elfless. <laughs> There's an S on there, so it's selfless. So just so you, it, it changes the definition quite a bit if you read like that. But a grand gesture is a defining decision, a calculated risk, a selfless sacrifice that doubles as a defining moment in your life. Not elfless, but selfless. For example, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 99 theses on the doors of the Castle Church. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. On May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy said he would land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth by the end of the decade. So any way you slice it, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Space Race were grand gestures. And when it comes to goal setting, problem solving, and habit breaking, grand gestures are one small step that turns into one giant leap. They are the point of no return. Now, I know I'm citing moments of historical significance here, but even if they aren't newsworthy, grand gestures are no less noteworthy when it comes to our own personal lives. Not everyone may know what's going on. The grand gesture is still grand. So I want to talk about the art and science of grand gestures. I'll share some studies and some stories here. But this idea has been around for a very, very long time. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of grand gestures. Noah builds a really big boat. <laughs> go big or go home, right? Abraham puts Isaac on the altar. The Israelites circled Jericho for seven days. Benaiah chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day and kills it. Esther does a three-day fast. Elisha burns his plowing equipment. Ezekiel lays on his left side for 390 days. James and John drop their nets. Peter gets out of the boat. Zacchaeus climbs a sycamore tree. Paul shaves his head at Centuria. And the Ephesians build a bonfire and burn their scrolls. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, but those are tipping points. Those are the days when decades happen. Those are the situations that turn into defining moments. And each one of them, in their own unique way, cut the rope. For some, it was a huge moment. For others, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of change. So one way or the other, there comes a moment when you need to cut the rope. So Mark chapter 4, you're there, verse 35. It says, When evening came, Jesus said to His disciples, 
let's cross over. Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So let me set this scene for you here from this, this verse so far. The Sea of Galilee, where they're at, is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. And they set out as the sun sets. And that's not insignificant at all. Because being on the open sea at night is scarier than being out there in broad daylight. So in verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, let me stop there for a moment, give a little sermon within this sermon right now, just real quick. Sometimes you need to leave the crowd behind. And how do you do that? I'm glad you asked. Almost all of us are suffering from information overload. We are bombarded with news and fake news every minute of every hour of every day. We've got, on, we, we've got online advertisers vying for our attention with clickbait. We've got social media algorithms targeting us based on likes and follows and search history. In fact, the other day, I was on the phone, uh, Brianna and I were on the phone together with our ins health insurance representative, and her name is Tam, Tam. And I thought that was an interesting name, and it reminded me of a person in our youth group at Labish Center of a, a, a kind of a same, similar, unique name. And her name was Tavi. Now, I said nothing. I was thinking this through all this time. And I thought, well, I wonder what Tavi is doing these days. What is Tavi doing these days? And then we went on with our phone call and conversation and all that. Later that night, I'm on my phone, looking through Facebook, and up comes Tavi Clack's profile picture. I was like, <laughs> are they knowing what I'm thinking too? Because <laughs> I said nothing. I, no, anyway, it was very creepy. Um, they may be reading my mind or something, maybe our minds, so watch out. Anyway, consuming social media, which is different from creating social media, Seems like eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> I'm not convinced that we are designed with the capacity to know everything about everything all the time. I'm certainly not suggesting, though, that we bury our head in the sand. We need to be praying about the news, which is very different from just watching the news. <laughs> Karl Barth said it this way. He said, take your Bible, take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. If we get this backwards, we're going to be in big, big, big trouble. When we filter the Bible through the news, our theology conforms to our reality, which is a form of idolatry. So how do you leave the crowd behind? For starters, the average person spends 152 minutes per day on social media. That's two and a half hours a day. That represents about 15% of our waking hours. Is this how you want to spend 15% of your life? <laughs> when was the last time you maybe did a day off or a phone off just to turn down the white noise? It's one way to turn up the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. We've got to make sure the still, small voice is the loudest voice in our lives right now, during these days especially. <laughs> So is Jesus prompting you to leave the crowd behind in some form or fashion? Anyway, okay, little sermon within the sermon done. Back to Mark 4. 
So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. But soon a furious squall came up, and the wave broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Now let me add a little topography here in this situation, to this chronology. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Below sea level. But it's surrounded by hills and mountains. The Golan Heights, which were called the Decapolis in Jesus' day, are 2,500 feet above sea level. 2,500 feet above sea level. That geography makes the Sea of Galilee susceptible to very sudden and violent storms as the winds come, especially over the eastern mountains and drop suddenly into the sea. Now, storms are more, more likely when an east wind blows cool air over the warm air that covers that sea. And that cold air being heavier will drop down as the warm air rises. And when that happens, we've got issues. <laughs> this sudden change can produce surprisingly furious storms in a short time as it did in Jesus' day. So, verse 38, Mark chapter 4. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. <laughs> now, I have heard of how naps can be beneficial, but I'm not a nap taker myself. If I take a nap, my evening, you know, my evening sleep is just ruined. I, I can't sleep very well. Nevertheless, a NASA study found that a 26-minute nap increases productivity 34%. Sorry, your pastor is 34% uh, lacking in productivity because he doesn't take a nap. But a lot of this depends on chronotype and, of course, circadian rhythm. But let's say your productivity happens before noon. If you take a short nap, you'll get two windows of creativity and productivity in this. So long story short, Jesus napped. And for some of you, that's all you need to know. You want to be just like Jesus, too. So you want to follow him in that way and, and be a napper as well. And, Maybe right now is your nap time. I don't know. But anyway, he was sleeping in the boat. Also, and, and continue on verse 38. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Isn't this fascinating? Jesus is sleeping, so evidently he doesn't care. We're awfully quick to assign blame at times, aren't we? We are awfully quick to attribute wrong motives, especially in these days. In stressful situations, our natural tendency is to play the blame game. And that's what the disciples do. In case you haven't noticed, everyone is, playing everyone, is blaming everyone else for everything that is happening these days. <laughs> Fingers are pointing everywhere. But we've got to stay humble and stay hungry. We've got to stay calm and carry on. We've got to stay in our lane and stay the course. Keep on moving forward. So here's a couple questions for you to wrestle with regarding these things. How much of what you're saying, how much of what you are conveying is a regurgitation of the news channel you watch or the social media accounts you follow? Contrast with this question. How much of what you're 
what, what we're saying is conveying the revelation you're getting from God's word. Weigh those two things. So verse 39, then Jesus got up and grabbed an oar, right? No, no, that's not it. Then Jesus got up and started bailing the boat. No, he didn't do that either. What did Jesus do? Look at verse 39 with me. Then Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Peace, be still. The wind died down, and it was completely calm. We suffer from hindsight bias. We know how every story ends, so we lose the element of the surprise. We lose the shock and awe. Jesus stands up and rebukes the, winds, the wind and waves. And why? Because He has the authority to do so. And how does He do it? Three words. Peace be still. In light of everything that is happening in our culture, this is a moment for the people of God to exercise their spiritual authority in a spirit of humility and for us to stand in the gap as peacemakers as grace givers, as, as tone setters. This is a moment for us to defeat the enemy by putting on the full armor of God, of course. See, our weapons are not carnal like what we have seen and heard these days. Our weapons have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We don't fight fire with fire. We shift the atmosphere by operating in the opposite spirit. We rebuke hate with love. We rebuke pride with humility. We rebuke cursing with blessing. We rebuke lies with truth. We rebuke injustice with righteousness. We rebuke racism with repentance and reconciliation. And we rebuke cancel culture with grace. We have the authority to move mountains. And I know this may sound a little spooky, but we are wrestling against powers and principalities. It's not flesh and blood, folks. We underestimate our authority in Christ because we fail to understand our identity in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 18, eight, chapter 18, verse 18, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And of course, it has to be in the will of God and for the glory of God. But if it is, stand back and get out of the way. <laughs> now, I mentioned grand gestures earlier. Let me talk about two kinds of grand gestures, and then I'll talk about two ways to cut the rope. So the first kind of grand gesture is what is called a field of dreams gesture. Field of dreams gesture. If you build it, they will come. It's Noah building the ark. It's Abraham making the move from Haran to uh, Shechem, even though he didn't know where he was going. It's the little boy who gives his brown bag lunch, the five loaves, two fishes, to, to Jesus. And all of these situations have to do with trusting God. With trusting God with the outcome of following His lead, regardless of whether it makes sense or not. See, walking by faith, not by sight. Sometimes taking risks makes no sense at all. There could be a moment in your life where taking a risk is totally upside down to the normal way of living. And people may look at you crazy for it. But you will know in your heart that it needs to be done. 
We think of Don moving off to Kentucky, and I'm sure as he shared that with people, people were kind of looking at him sideways going, what? It's Tom O'Brien, some of you remember him, who was part of the Tribe of Judah Motorcycle Ministries. As he would travel about and go into the awfulest places to minister to the motorcycle gangs. And then he decided, to, after his motorcycle accident, decided to um, do a hot dog stand so that he can share Christ with people. It's Mark Durkoop starting Return Ministries from the ground up. And it's this former youth pastor <laughs> becoming a pastor of Happy Valley Community Church. When God is calling you to do something, it doesn't always make sense, and it doesn't always add up. And as a matter of fact, there will be times when it takes more faith than you can muster up to take these steps. But when God places a calling on your heart, it's actually riskier not to make these senseless moves. So what kind of ark-building, brown-bag lunch-giving is Jesus prompting you in? And if he is prompting you, what's your response? So there's a field of dreams gesture. There's also the other kind of grand gestures, what could be called the enough is enough gesture. You hit a point of no return. It's now or never. It's David's decision to fight Goliath. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to the 90-foot statue of a godless king named Nebuchadnezzar. It's the disciples leaving their old life behind to follow Jesus. These are the moments when the decision is made to move forward to obedience when, when there's no turning back. I think of Tina Fortin, who started up Garden of Hope Ministries, and we heard her here at the church express what that is all about. To be able to help out those women who, who post-abortion need that ministry, need that help as well as going to the abortion clinics and trying to help other women understand the truths behind all that. It's the young Christian answering the call of missions to go to a faraway land and minister to the people there. And everyone else is going, what are you doing leaving everything behind? It's the Christian professional athlete or lawmaker or actor or actress placing their career on the line by making a stand for Jesus and the biblical principles. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Maybe that song is ringing in your ears. Both of these gestures require cutting the rope. And there are two keys to cutting the rope that I'd like to share with you. One, you got to kneel down. And two, you got to stand up. First, let's look at kneeling, kneeling down. It's very obvious that we need revival. (laughs) Very obvious. What I mean by that is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. We need to humble ourselves and pray, seek God first, and turn from our wicked ways. Revival always starts with repentance. It's, it's repenting of our personal sin. It's lamenting our, our corporate sin. And it starts with the people of God. That's how it started in Asbury revival just a few months back. It wasn't the message, but it was people turning to God, feeling a tug on their hearts to repent. Rodney Gypsy Smith 
was born on the outskirts of London in 1860. He never received a formal education, yet he lectured at Harvard. <laughs> Despite his humble origins, he was invited by two sitting United States presidents to the White House. Gypsy crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times, preaching the gospel to millions of people, and he never preached without someone surrendering their life to the, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Gypsy was, was powerfully used by God. Everywhere he went, it seemed like revival was right on his heels. But it wasn't his preaching that brought revival. Preaching may move the hearts of men, but praying moves the heart of God. That's where revival comes from. Gypsy revealed his secret to a delegation of revivalists who sought an audience with him. They wanted to know how they could make a difference with their lives the way he had with his. His answer was simple yet profound. As timely and timeless now as it was a hundred years ago, he gave them this advice. This is what he said. Go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of your floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. <laughs> within that circle. See, prayer is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for us. We need prayer so much. To cut the rope, you got to kneel down. You got to pray. And two, you got to stand up. You got to stand up. On January 30th, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at First Baptist Church when he was interrupted and told that his house had been bombed. That night, he was sitting at his kitchen table when he heard a voice that said, Martin, do not be afraid. Inspired by that experience, Dr. King took a stand, and this is what he said about those things. He said, you may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause, and you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job, or you're afraid that you will be criticized, or that you will lose your popularity, or you're afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house. So you refuse to take the stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90, but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the Spirit. We need to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. That's not the purpose of life. So we need to kneel down. We need to stand up. And then we need to do it all over again. <laughs> That's how you cut the rope. Let me share a few last thoughts here about all this. In order to win the day, you must elevate or evaluate. You must evaluate what is holding you back. Take a look at what's holding you back. What are those things? What risk are you not taking? What rope needs to be cut in your life? 
You won't be able to see the possibilities of what could be unless you are willing to cut the rope and take a risk. You could be one decision away from a total renovation of your entire life. So plan it out, calculate the risk, and cut the rope. And remember that habits equal results. And too often we don't take a risk because we aren't getting the results we want. But we fail to realize that these results are due to the bad habits we have formed and continue to make. Mark Batterson says, uh, your actions are perfectly designed to achieve the results you're getting. (laughs) Perfectly designed. What you're doing right now, that's the results you're going to get. The best way to change the results you're getting is by changing your habits. So before cutting the rope, maybe some of you are here, before cutting the rope to take a risk, you need to cut the wires of bad habits and allow Jesus to form new ones in you. This will produce more desirable results and will be one step closer to having the courage to take that risk and cut the rope and fulfill God's purpose for your life. So have you come to the moment in your life where you need to take a step of faith and respond to God's promptings? Are you on the edge of this looking out thinking, okay, if I make the decision and I fail, it's a long way down there. It's going to be a big fall but God is leading me, should I take this step or not? If you're at that point, then follow this this scriptural advice. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. You hear Him. You sense His promptings. Don't harden your hearts. The writer of Hebrews advocated same-day delivery. (laughs) If you don't do it today, your heart becomes a little harder so does your hearing. Before you know it, it's difficult to discern the promptings of the Holy Spirit. According to to Parkinson's Law, the amount of time it takes to accomplish a task depends on the time allotted. The time it takes expands or contracts based on deadlines. If you have two days, it'll take two days. If you have two weeks, it will take two weeks. If you have two months, it will take two months. Got something you need to take action on? Then today is the day. If you wait until you're ready, you'll be waiting for the rest of your life. You'll never be totally ready. But if God is prompting you to take that step of faith, you need to do it. You need to cut the rope. It's time to cut the rope, so do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time together, and thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would meet with each person here right now today. And if there's someone here today, and those who are online here join us as well, they feel your promptings in certain areas. And those promptings are leading to kind of a risky, risky step of faith. I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to speak to those hearts and reminding them that that step of faith is what you're calling them to do. And if you're calling us to do that, we need to obey. We need to fall in line. Because not doing that is even more risky. So, Lord, I pray that you would just remind us about how you, if you called us to do these things, you will equip those who are called. And you will help us be able to make those steps along the way. But we need to take that first initial step.
cutting the rope, taking the risk. So, Lord, whatever that might look like in, in, in each person's life here today, I pray, Lord, that they be willing to say, yes, Lord, hand me the axe. <laughs> we need to cut this thing right now. If we're struggling with that, Lord, maybe this is a time where we just need to spend some time with you about that and a little discussion. But I pray, Jesus, that you would just continue to deal with each one of us as is best fit for us, that we can respond to you in a way of obedience. I thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that if anyone's being prompted to make some big steps of faith, that they would be willing to do so, at least be willing to do so at this point. Thank you, Lord. We love you so very much. In your name we pray. Amen.